0: Bienvenidos to Merendeando! This week, we soon call all the way to Mexico City to talk to Mexican playwright, director, and translator, Paula Celaya Cervantes.
1: Since graduating from the University of British Columbia and returning to Mexico City, she's created several multiple award-winning plays, which have been celebrated by some of Mexico's biggest cultural institutions.
0: In this conversation, we talk about the difference between translation and adaptation how an audience favorite at the Vancouver Fringe Festival became a Mexican theater hit, and what
1: it's like to be an independent theater artist in Mexico City right now. Let's dive right in. There's so much to talk about. There's so many things. We thought we'd start at the beginning. Okay,
2: that's great. So,
1: like, can you share a little bit about
2: your where you grew up, where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Mexico City, which is where I am right now, and I was here for most of my life, I went to school in in Vancouver, um, which is basically where I met a lot of Canadian people and Mm -hmm. the reason behind my doing this podcast as well. Um, I went to school in Canada. I did my bachelor's at UBC. Uh, I was there for five years and then I came back to Mexico City. So basically, I just had that one moment in the middle of my life where I lived outside of Mexico City.
1: Yeah. And did you, you write when you were growing up? Like, was that something that you loved? To-
2: um, yeah, I loved reading and making up stories in my head. So I kind of like, I kind of counted as writing. And then when I was around 10, 9 or 10, I started writing like little short stories or would draw pictures and then kind of like, it was kind of like oral storytelling to myself, kind of like yeah. just stories for myself. So no, not really writing them down, but like, rehearsing them in my head and thinking about them and almost trying to get them exactly the same every time I told them to myself, weirdly. Um, (laughs) But I started writing, like actually writing later on, like when I was maybe 16, 17 is when I started doing, like formally saying, like, I want to be a writer.
1: Yeah, awesome. And then what made you choose going to Vancouver to study, like, in university?
2: Um, It was two things. One, my dad went to, he did his master's and PhD in in the UK so he was always really supportive of my my going abroad to like just maybe experiment uh, university life outside of Mexico which is really really different. Mexican universities are a little less cool I guess. It's like less of a life-changing experience than it is in other places where you actually like leave home and you go to this place and everyone's like there's this whole like city around you that's around the university and and it's a life-changing thing. It's not quite like that here it's more like an extension of high school it feels like so my dad was really keen on my like getting that experience and also i wanted to do a double major which we don't have here i wanted to do theater and english lit and we don't do double majors here so i was like i'm gonna have to sacrifice one of these two things so i was always really um keen to try and find uh, a program outside of mexico and then i i applied at ubc and um I don't remember why I ended up in Vancouver. I think one of my good friends told me like, oh, there's this really cool school in, 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 in Vancouver and you should go there. So I applied and they gave me a full ride. So that was basically the reason why I could go there. Was I, I, There was no way I could have afforded international tuition um, without no that. So it's like, kind of like all different things kind of just worked out in that way. Um, and also Vancouver is not as cold as the rest of Canada. So that was one of the, yeah. one of the big things <laughs> to maybe go there as well. Monica, <laughs> you had like a very bitter yeah. laugh right now. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. My sister studied in Vancouver for a year, and then when I wanted to move to Canada, I was like Toronto because <laughs> also I thought it was closer to New York kind of close not that close and i moved literally in october so i
2: about to start winter and i was no. like oh, okay
0: good, good good
2: good oh poor thing i was freezing in vancouver like i thought that like this is the coldest i've ever been and ever will be in my life so i can't imagine toronto in october I... mm-hmm. it was great. It was a good like wake up
0: yeah. <laughs> I something that you said that it was like you were like your first audience member it was like you used to do stories for yourself? Yeah, I like did. That. Do you think you still do that? You, yeah, when we do theater, we do it for other people? Or do you actually
2: think you we do it for us and then it turns out that people like it? I usually, I try to keep that, like, that mindset that I'm doing it for myself, and if I like it, then other people will, but usually you're thinking of, like, other people, to be honest. Like, that's (laughs) what I'm usually thinking about, and I'm trying to, like, in a more therapeutic way towards myself, trying to think about, no, if this is for me, and then if I show it and other people like it, then that's awesome. I still do kind of tell stories to myself in my head, just for, for me, I guess, but once I'm sitting down and I'm writing a play, I usually think a lot more about people. Who are going to be watching it? Um, yeah. Although, of course, I, I have to like it, right? If I don't like it, then like I'll rewrite it or do something to make make it more likable to me. But I, I do think a lot about the audience. I should go back to.
1: No, it wasn't. I was six. <laughs> now, listen. There's no wrong way, and like obviously, audiences really love your work. So I think you're doing something right. Like good, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, so I guess I'm curious, like. English literature. Like how did you get into English literature? Um, like I guess your father studied in the UK. Did that influence you at all? Or yeah?
2: He did. My dad's always been very like, because he studied in the UK, he was always felt really close to that culture. And then I went to um an English immersion school, a bicultural school here in Mexico City. So it was basically I I was four years old when I like when I first um, started at the school, and basically none of the teachers spoke Spanish, only like the teacher's assistants, so I basically had to learn English really, really quickly, and I learned to read and write in English. I didn't know how to read in Spanish uh, until I was like six or seven. When I started, I was five, and I learned to do that, so always like in my head, reading and writing was always really like close to the English language, so I I grew up in in that culture, so I most of the things that I read as a child, usually like when I turned like 15, 14, I started reading more in Spanish and it kind of like, like bubbled up. But before Mm -hmm. then I was reading mostly in English. So I I always felt really close to that. Um, and it was also my best subject at school always. So I was like, I'm going to study that. I always liked liked it. Um, but yeah, it was because of my dad and, and, and my school, which was, I was completely immersed in, in the English language my whole life. So that's why. had
1: yeah. And now it's like looks like one of your main things is being a translator. And it is. You're you're so strong
2: in both languages. So that's such a gift. It is. It is a big gift. It's it's lovely. I I, I don't know how my like my brain would work if I couldn't use both languages. But yeah, it, it gave me something to do or like for a living, even just translating is is a gift and something I can do, even if everything else fails. I can do that, <laughs> which is awesome.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we're all looking for plan B's and C's right now. Yeah. <laughs> in the global context we're in. Yeah. I want to talk about the Org Weaver
0: or El Hilador. El Hilador, yeah. Because I remember I knew about this show because I was watching the metros from Los Metros desde, from here. Right, yeah. And I was like, wow, I need to watch this show. Like It was like so beautiful. So when uh, Camila mentioned you, I was like, I need to to meet this person
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's great that you watch that yes well, no that's also because awesome. i
0: don't know how to connect with theater in mexico being right. here like i used to be so involved in monterrey which is way different to mexico city and monterrey right <laughs> like what? no uh but i was like i want to connect with most of my friends instead of if they don't uh, live monterrey to go somewhere internationally they all moved to mexico city yeah. some of my friends mostly musical theater friends were in los metros so i watched yeah. los metros and i was like what <laughs>
2: like why did i miss all of this like it's really cool los metro is is awesome it's um it's a new award ceremony it's kind of like our mexican tonys um and they started two years ago we we'd had a lot of different initiatives to get that kind of um award ceremony going for many years but they were never really quite up to like what we felt was the standard we should be having in in a city like mexico city with the amount of theater that we have here so they basically created this new award ceremony and like a a specific set of rules and they turned it into this really amazing show like it's really good quality we had all the people from film uh, all the awards uh, film award ceremonies calling uh the metro saying like can you can you help us (laughs) Yeah, that that happened because it was so beautifully made. It was really like we felt bad that our award ceremonies before were it, it didn't seem as though they were made by theater people, but by people who had never like put a, a, like a foot on a stage or known how to like um, set up a, a like light, lighting cue or a sound cue properly. Right. So yeah, then yeah. it felt like the, these ceremony, like these awards, feel like they are made by theater people, and so it's a really exciting initiative. It's basically like, yeah, the awards and whatever, but it's usually more of a, an effort to get people to think of Mexico City as a, as a city where theater happens and not just like as something else. People come here for all different reasons and we want people to come here because of the theater as well. So even though it is an award ceremony, the whole point of it is to get people, that's why it makes me so happy that people outside of Mexico are watching it because it means it's reaching a wider audience than just like the people who do theater here so
1: yeah. that's the metros oh, awesome thank you for yeah. that like yeah. my my vision of mexico city is that it's this amazing cultural hub and it's like a feast where i wouldn't even know where to begin like yeah. there's just so <laughs> many different things to do and see um and i'm just wondering as someone who's lived there your whole life basically um what is your vision of like how would you describe the theater scene in mexico like what kind of aesthetic does it have what kind of questions are being asked Like what is it what's the sabor in
2: the air (laughs) it is everything like it's a bit of everything it's really hard to define because there's so much of it and so many different groups and theaters and artists working on it it's like a like mosaico so basically i couldn't tell you what it's defined by because there's just so many so we have like this really like big commercial theater. We have like, we had Les Miserables here, like the actual Broadway production with our, our Mexican actors in it, which was mind blowing. And we had Wiccan. And then we also have like these tiny things that they do in street corners and like these tiny, tiny theaters. So basically like what defines it, I guess it is, it's not definable. There's so much of it going on all the time, um, which is really cool and like really overwhelming, I think for our audiences as well. People don't know what to watch because there's just so much of it. Um, There's a lot of, like, if I could define a a particular stream of it, I would say um, story theater, uh, narraturgia, which is something that's been going on here for a while, and I didn't see that much of in Canada. Um, It responds to narraturgia. It's a kind of theater where basically we respond to our limitations. We can't have you know like a turntable and we can't have all these like different set pieces coming in and out because of money so basically what we do is we describe them so it's a character describing what is going on um story theater that's um the style that uh Elilador is written in so basically we're asking the audience to imagine things we are describing so we're saying like oh there's a thing there and it's it's a thing that's really popular here because it's easy to make people travel to different places without having to like make things happen there um one of her biggest uh playwrights Alejandro ricaño um who's like one of the 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 playwrights who've been exploring this more successfully i guess in the last few years um he has a play that you should you you guys should watch i'll let you know when it's uh back online because they're streaming some of his plays el amor de las luciernagas that's the first play that i saw coming back here it was doing that and there's so many others um and that was Like, I was shocked to see that kind of theater and say like, wow, like you can, you can do that. You can not, like you have three actors on stage and like a suitcase and make things happen. So that was really, that's one of like the streams in Mexican theater that I really admire, I guess, is that kind of theater. But there's like, there's everything. There's musicals. Like, it's insane. It's insane. You you would be here to like, understand what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, of course. (laughs) Sounds like very exciting it is. and I, it is. I love that style that's so beautiful it so is. that's the style that the Ilador kind of t- touches into awesome yeah. so from what I understand what I've seen the Ilador is three actors mm-hmm. three three actors. and they yeah and they create this entire beautiful fantasy world it's got like you know some Shakespeare elements some like sci-fi elements some dark elements some comedy it's like all of this delicious fantasy world um and it was really, really celebrated, from what I can see, everywhere that yeah. I went. <laughs> and it, one of the main places it started was in the Vancouver Fringe yeah. Festival. So the process of making that show happen also sounds really fascinating and stressful and amazing, like a real juicy nugget. So can you share a little bit about how the, that process came to you? Yeah,
2: um, so the play started out in English, actually. Um, I wrote it while I was still like my last two years in in Vancouver, and we had kind of like a workshop performance. I had a theater collective, my my university friends, um, Humera Theater Collective was called, and it was awesome. We did two Fringes uh, together, and it was really cool just to like get to know what theater was like outside of school. So we did um, yeah. we did the first version in English it was called The Orb Weaver, and it was like this really like weird, different version, like completely different to what it is now. Um, so we did that in 2014, and then over the next few years, I kind of like developed it. Um, I had help from Kathleen Flaherty from the Vancouver Playwrights Theatre Center, who's awesome. Like she was like, yeah. an awesome dramaturge, and my friend Matthew Willis, who's um, also a, a Vancouver-based theatre and film artist, he also helped me dramaturge. So throughout those two years, we kind of like worked. Um, I was I was in Mexico City and working through the, the play, and then we kind of came up with the idea that since we done two Vancouver fringes like why wouldn't we do another one with this show so we applied and then we, we got in <laughs> and then we realized we had no money yeah. like because the the like the registration fee is pretty high and just like I was like okay I have to apply to Vancouver and do six shows over there in September so I told my my boss that I, I was working for a production company theater production company um on sales producciones who are now my my producers
1: Right, in, Mexico, in Mexico. Mexico, Yeah, okay. So I, yeah. I talked
2: to them, and she was like, "Okay, let me read the play," and she loved it. And we basically did this whole fundraising thing, and they invested some money. We decided the easiest way was to um, rehearse it here, so we would need Mexican actors, and then just fly a lot of us over to Vancouver for two weeks. It was it was insane. Like it wasn't like when I look back, <laughs> I'm like, "Why did we do that? <laughs> like, who thought this was a good idea?" Because it, it, it was too too big of like a a mess to to do but then I'm really glad that we did um I'm just so mm-hmm. like thankful to my boss Jimena who said let's do it and, and um we did it together and it was crazy so we rehearsed it here my friend Matthew flew down to Mexico City for a week or two to um, like dramaturge with us and, and so on um we cool does Matthew speak he does it was really interesting it was okay. his first time in Mexico City he was like I was, one day he was I was working and I was like well just go and have a walk and he's like slide on my own you can do it go ahead um and we had a cast that could like because the play was in english so our cast was um also like spanish and english speaker it was insane because we basically like we didn't have any set pieces so all of my friends in vancouver this was this was like the important part of like doing it in vancouver was i had people there who would like who could help us so yeah my friend's parents they took us in they had like extra rooms so they were like you guys and they took like you're moving in yeah you're moving and they were so lovely they were wonderful um my friend nick and our, my friend caitlin helped us find like set pieces that like, you walk around um like picking up stuff from the street that people would leave out in the back lane yeah so it's basically a played made from junk um and we did have beautiful uh costume design from a, a mexican a costume designer we decided that since we were going to ask people to like go into this really fantastic story um, it's like fantasy and it's kind of dark and it's like a story world. So we, we thought it was necessary for people to be able to see some of that. So our costume design was like that. That's one of the things we invested in uh, mm-hmm. to make it like really clearly theatrical. And, and and it's the same costume design that we are using now, uh, later that we used. And we had props, really nice props. So basically that was it. no set design. Everything you could put in a suitcase. Exactly. exactly. Like Every, yeah, exactly. And we had like... <laughs> plays a little bit dark so we had like these body parts um yeah props of course but we were like so worried that people in at the airport would go like what are what are you doing? <laughs> Ooh, what is this? Yes. It was a great experience. Like we were we were terrified. Fringes are really extreme just like yeah they so it sounds just like such a so many risks on risks. Yeah, right yeah. <laughs> it was terrifying because we you have three hours we had three hours tech mm-hmm. so that was hard and then we had only like 15 minutes pre-show every single time to set up the whole thing. And if you ever see a another, you will appreciate the feat that is mm-hmm. trying to get all the props, pe- prop pieces in place exactly as they should be in 15 minutes. It's like, it was so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and had any of the
1: Mexican performers that you worked
2: with done a
1: fringe before? No. Or, okay. So you were also like, welcome to this world. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they were all used to Mexican, like, Teatro Guerrillero, what we call, ah, which is yeah. basically just like doing doing theater with whatever you have. It's pretty common. It's like the way that most theater artists start out. Like no one, no producers will even look at them because they don't know them. So basically what you do is like invest like 2,000 pesos and try to get a theater. And so they were used to that kind of theater because they they'd all started out doing that. Yeah. Um, but they were not used to the festival feeling of the Vancouver Fringe, which is a beautiful feeling. Feeling that you do your show and then immediately after you run to try to catch your friend's show, and then someone you're queuing outside of the theater, and someone says like, "Hey, come watch my show!" And then right yeah. after that one, you go. It's it's like this beautiful community, which is something that you don't see very often at all. And, and here we we don't have a fringe, so um, that was really really cool. And people really liked it. They like we had an awesome response. We had almost every single show was sold out, and people waiting left waiting outside. Yay! It was really shocking to us. We were were like, what is going on? People really like it. So it was one of the coolest things that I've done in my life was the Vancouver Fringe, which is weird because it's not the version that we wanted to have. And still people just bought into it and and enjoyed it. So that was like a good lesson in what theatre really is Mm. to me, I think. Mm -hmm. It was helpful also for us to understand what the play would be we we mm. weren't too sure about the aesthetic we kind of we had some ideas and then after doing that and realizing that junk could be turned into the theater then the whole aesthetic and then afterwards we we had a, a government grant here and we had a lot of money to actually do it i sent you a picture of um one of the photos i sent you and like that's a full yeah, production so and really it's gorgeous. a really ambitious production but the whole aesthetic came from basically the junk that you can find and how that junk can be turned into something else and how things that we think aren't useful or valuable usually turn out to be that mm-hmm. like the whole heart of, of the show is that and we figured that out by doing it through the fringe so that was it was a really interesting i guess process so after you came back from fringe
0: how long did it take to put it on the stage in mexico
2: so we came back The Fringe was in 2016, and we were trying to figure out whether we would do like a little performance here for people, just like people who fundraise for us. And then we realized, no, we're going to like put it away and wait till we can do it. And then we we filed for the grant in 2017, and we got it, and we opened July 2018. So it took less than two years.
0: And through the whole time you were adapting it from uh, English to Spanish
2: now? It didn't take that long. It took about... It took longer than a usual translation period for sure, but it took about four months. Um, so yeah, because the play was, we added a few scenes after the Fringe, but basically the play was basically finished when we when we did it at the Fringe. So what we had to do was just kind of like, I wouldn't say it was an adaptation, but kind of like a rewriting of it into Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, but what took longest was just like the grant application and getting all the money in place. The production stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah because it's a very, very big production. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the whole time you work with the same actors? Yeah, the whole, the whole time. We had we had a really, really successful first season in El Teatro Elénico uh, here in Mexico City. And then right after, we were um, asked to uh, go into a different theater for a second season, almost immediately after. And that was a little bit more intense. Uh, we had two, three shows a week or something like that. So we had to um, add two more actors, three more actors to... Like our, our acting roaster because um, whatever actors couldn't like Monday night, so whatever. So for a while we had six. We, we have six people who can do the your believer, but usually we have the three original actors from the Vancouver Fringe. Cool.
1: Well, I'm really interested in um, how you translate because I feel like your style is so so unique to me. It's not just changing the word from Spanish to English, but the whole cultural context that's around it. And I'm just wondering, in your opinion, like, how do you think about translating? Like, is is there a difference between a pure translation and an adaptation? And how do you choose when you do what?
2: Right. I guess it depends on, so for example, the your believer, I wouldn't really, as I said, I wouldn't really call it a translation because, because since I wrote it, I have like any like freedom that i want to do whatever i want with it mm-hmm. so i knew what the story was and what the characters were and what like the style and language was and then i rewrote it into spanish so i couldn't say it was translated because it like it, i it, i wasn't doing like this word for word thing i was basically just letting it flow back into spanish i can't really explain what i did there um <laughs> <It> <laughs> usually makes sense, though. Yeah. It, yeah i kind of like yeah just like giving it the shape it would have in spanish same story just like the shape it would have in spanish um, to the point where you couldn't tell like whether it was written originally in Spanish or English. That was kind of a point. With mm-hmm. plays that I that I, I didn't write and that I'm I'm asked to translate and adapt, I usually like go about it two ways. Yeah. So you you
1: translated slash adapted the glass menagerie. Yeah,
2: which is Tennessee Williams, such a yeah. unique like flavor of words. It was awesome. It's it's really cool translating because you kind of like it's like a really intimate experience with someone else's language and someone else's mm-hmm. writing. Like it's a, it's closer than like reading or directing something. It kind of flows through you and then you put it back out again, I guess. So it's really cool doing that play. Usually with that kind of show, um, because you can't really turn it into a Mexican thing, right? Because it's it's um, it's really American. It's an American play. Yeah. So you need to like make sure that audiences know. But then at the same time, it feels really familiar to audiences I feel in the US, like just the language and, and the feeling of it. So it's really we, the director and idea go really interested in in keeping it American, but making sure it didn't feel distant. So what we did was like a a very light adaptation. So making sure that even though it was still set in the U.S., the language didn't feel distant or bookish, Um, because like the whole point of uh, Amanda, the character, like this, oh, there's people yelling outside. Um, (laughs) The whole point is she's a mom, and I think she's really recognizable for anyone who's ever had a, a mom <laughs> um, she even though she's like really intense but but there's things that we wanted to make sure that the audience would get so we tried a very like slight adaptation making sure that it felt slightly Mexican even though we weren't pointedly turning it into Mexican play if okay. that makes any sense
1: <laughs> no that totally makes sense but I kind of want to sidebar for a second what yeah. are they trying to
2: sell out your window right now he said el gas agua, agua y puré Ah, well, yes. ah, el garrafón.
0: el, el garrafón justo
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this. Yeah, every day it's like either gas, like natural gas for like heating, or water, or newspapers, or they're trying to buy old things from you, or tamales, or gamotes, or the guy who comes around to sharpen your knives and your scissors.
0: He yes. said yes. the people who who gets your stuff is el se compran colchones. Esos. Yes,
2: like Esos. You don't yeah. even need to
1: leave your house. They're coming right to you. No, like, like, they come okay.
2: right to you. And it's it's constant, though. And, like for Zoom meetings, it's really annoying sometimes.
1: <laughs> You're like, does anybody need gas? Because like, we have a guy here who's really <laughs> interested in this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the last Menagerie. Um, so how did you do those slight Mexicanisms to the play? I'm so curious. Like, is there any detail you can share?
2: Yeah. Um, so we never pointedly used Mexican words. Like, I don't know like just slang, we never did that. But the, the sentence structure um, and kind of like as, as casual and as contemporary as we could make it, we try to make those words in those sentences so it wouldn't feel translated. Um, trying to make it as similar to, to Mexican Spanish as possible without, jumping into Mexican Spanish. So it was like Mm -hmm. a really, really fine line. I think we did a good job. Usually most translations of American classics that I've read in Spanish feel a little bit academic. They're very like consciously making it so that the audience know this is not here. And we wanted our audience to have to remind themselves this is not here, Mm. rather than have them continually feel like there was something between them and, and, and the play. And I think it worked out. But there's other shows, like most of the plays that I've I've adapted are, we we do make a point of turning them into Mexican adaptations because usually if they're contemporary and they're supposed to happen in 2019, it's really hard for slang to be translated into Spanish and then not have to be turned into Mexico. It doesn't work, it really doesn't work. So last year I, what did I translate, translated, Dennis Kelly's Boys and Girls a really horrible awesome beautiful uh, one woman show like a monologue and it's really contemporary Um, it's very slangy it's uh, British so it's really slangy in in, in British slang and so we had to like we had to make the character Mexican there was no way that we could preserve that feeling that really like just right now feeling mm -hmm. without it Turning without turning it into a Mexican thing. So basically, what I try to do now, what people mostly ask me to do, is adapt things so that they feel like they were made for Mexico. We also did um, this play called Good People. Um, David Lindsay Aire, who's another American playwright, awesome. and his play it's, it's about poverty and about um, uh, class and in in Chicago, I think. I think I should know this. It was two years ago, so I'm allowed to forget. <laughs> And we did a really careful, we changed quite a few things with permission from the the playwright, but we changed quite a few things so that we would, the audience, because it was was so important to us that um, it it was about class and, and poverty and that is such a big issue in Mexico. So we thought it was really important for people to feel like that was actually them that was being talked about and not something distant that happens to Americans like poor white americans were there mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. we wanted to feel really uncomfortably mexican to the point where you couldn't escape the fact that that's exactly what's going on here so we did um take a few uh, like a liberties few bigger yeah a few liberties trying to make sure that people would not be able to hide away from the fact that that was mexico was being talked about so that's more that's kind of like the kind of translation adaptation i do most of is turning plays into Mexican plays, basically. So it depends on the show and it depends on the director as well.
1: It kind of sounds like bringing your like one way of bringing art from the world to a Mexican audience, like pulling things yeah. and showing people. It's it's just such an important part of an ecosystem. I guess I'm I'm learning that like you know making sure everyone can have access to beautiful things in the language and in the cultural context that makes sense to them. That's really and to cool. the same
2: degree that someone else would, because sometimes if you see a play that feels translated, I do feel like it doesn't completely go through to the audience member. I feel like if it doesn't feel close to home, there's a, there's a slight difference. Of course, you, you can imagine and you can usually empathize with wh- whoever, but it, I do feel that it, there's a big difference between feeling like it could happen here and feeling like it just could never happen here because it's so distant. And, yeah. I think that's important. That's what yeah. we try to do anyway.
0: Yeah, so cool. I was thinking of translation and like, cause I, when I watch movies here, like Disney movies. Yeah. And it's movies that I watched in Mexico and <laughs> when I was a kid and then I'll watch it in English and I'm like, it's wrong. Like, this is wrong. And like my partner will be like, why is it wrong? And I'm like, cause this is not the song. This is not the music. <laughs> And, or the jokes the, the jokes yeah, are so liber- much better the spanish liberties spanish. that we think like i was watching shrek <laughs> shrek in oh, spanish and shrek in spanish is a gem like oh i gotta watch that that's amazing <laughs> please do because please the go. way that translated it was like so specific to like i'm um, like a latin American. i'm gonna say mexican audience
2: like yeah, the jokes
0: probably. you're like i get them so when i was watching it in english i was
2: like, ah. it's like silly, funny <laughs> <laughs>
1: So then, most recently, you worked on an adaptation, and I believe you also directed this, uh, of Bichito, or Little One, by Hannah Moscovich. So a Canadian playwright, bringing it back up here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So how did you... Why did you decide to do this particular play for a Mexican audience?
2: Um, I watched Little One. It was... At UBC, um, it was like a school production. I remember one of my friends, Luke Johnson, was in it. And I I don't really remember much of it, but I remember leaving and feeling like that was a really powerful play that I'd just seen. And like almost super contained and like it was incredibly powerful and still small in a way, Um, like short story almost. And and I, I just felt really drawn to it. Um, and then I put it away for a long time. Um, and I, I always thought I would like to to do it here. But um, yeah, it felt like when we started looking for a place to do, because um, we started doing this play uh, through Photo Shakespeare, which is like a, a theater company here and, and theater venue. And they started doing this thing called Manifiesto 19, which is um, basically a call to producers and directors and theater artists in general to try to do things with less money because we're dealing with that right now. Um and always in Mexico City like in Mexico in general there's just never enough money for culture and we're always struggling to find ways to get an audience to understand that yeah you can go and see wicked but then you can't expect the same from all of the theater that you see. So it's it's totally. an effort to try to get people to create theater in less expensive ways. So it's um the rules are you are not allowed to have um any set uh, pieces except for things that you can like borrow or steal or they're already there uh there are no light light changes uh no sound cues um can be played unless they come from the stage so if i my in 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 our production we have our cue lab our our laptop is there and the characters are are hitting the q lab every time there's a need for a sound cue um And what else? It's so fun. It is, it's fun. It was really challenging. Like just not having, one of my favorite things in theater is light. Like lighting changes make all the difference. Yeah. And not having that for just changing, like for rhythm and for closing a scene and for um, like focus, changing focus. It was really hard to do that without it. So basically um, our producer said like, we we need to show that we can do produce under these um, rules. And um Anna and I, Anna Gonzalez de who's um the, the actor in, in the play, um, who's also my my creative partner. Um yeah. we do we do a lot of shows together. And she was also in the believers. so um she's she's a, uh, an actress I work a lot with. We were kind of like brainstorming. She's like, Well, you, you gave me that play, the Canadian play, Little One, to read. And the cool thing about Little One is it's very powerful and very intense but it's also really easy to produce it's two actors and like basically that's it basically yeah. that's it
1: mm-hmm.
2: um so we are we gave it to a producer and he really liked it and that's kind of like how the whole thing started yeah. was it originally going to be a live thing or was it always going to be live stream it was going to be a live thing we we struggled it's a really theatrical play it's it's a memory play i don't know if you know the Player, I don't read it, read No, it. really- I love Hannah Moscovich, so I'm sure it's just amazing. Yeah, Hannah is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, It's a really theatrical play, so it's a memory play. We have the one character who's listening to a recording of his sister's voice, and then we see the sister, and she she's not there, but she's there, you know, in like this theatrical way that only theater can do, where we're hearing her voice, but we're seeing her t- speak, and so we, we understand that what we're seeing is what he's listening to. And then when we had to Change everything because of COVID. We realized that we had to tell that same story without the theater in it and with cameras. So it was really hard. It was it was a struggle trying to like figure out how we would do that, especially because it is so theatrical and it was hard mm-hmm. to tear ourselves away from what we know. We it is our language. Like we speak totally. theater, and then they're like, "Well, yeah, but you can't do that anymore." <laughs> it was hard, but yeah, it was originally meant to be a live production, and then we kind of had to improvise
1: (laughs) yeah
0: and now people can watch that one on live stream
2: they can yeah and anywhere i've had a a couple of um canadian friends watch it from from vancouver so if people are interested it's it's completely in in spanish so um you're a spanish speaker or learning spanish i've had a few people go like my spanish isn't good enough but it was almost good enough and it's been (laughs) exciting to hear from canadian friends Um, It's the first time that I think Hannah has been produced in Mexico City, which is exciting to me because she is awesome. And it's interesting how very close to home the play is, Um, especially here. Mm. It it deals with um, issues of abuse and silence and the silencing of victims and re-victimizing of victims and who gets to, to tell a story, who gets to say what really happened. And usually people who are most affected by something are usually people who have the hardest time speaking about it. And so if you don't get a chance to speak about it, then you basically don't get a chance to to tell the story and to make sure that the truth gets out. So that's really important to me. And especially here in, in Mexico, where we're dealing with, um, there's been a massive feminist movement lately. It's, it's been going on for years, but It's been really, really palpable lately, especially this year. And we're learning and relearning how to understand that usually abuse leaves really specific marks on people and it makes it hard for them to speak and harder for them to be believable. Um, And this play is exactly about that. So we felt when we reread it this time around, we were like, we need to do this. We need to do this because it's so important that we understand that the people that we, the play deals with um, Anna's character kami uh clear in english um that character is can usually be understood as a a monster she's a psychopath she's crazy she's a killer and then you realize that is she really is it just like our perception and is it easier to believe that that person is incurable you can't mm-hmm. do anything for her because she's just traumatized and she should get over her trauma and the play kind of questions that and puts the audience in a really uncomfortable position of realizing at the end they're like oh well maybe not and we thought it was really important to to be showing here right now and it's interesting that we can live stream it because more people get to see it mm-hmm. so that, that was important too so when is the live stream running until um it's running until october 27th uh it's tuesdays at 8 30 central standard, standard time so that would be nine thirty eastern i think Eat. We'll leave, everything
0: will be on the cho- yeah. show notes okay. and we'll have a yes. link and everything.
1: Okay, exactly. Awesome. So people can listen to this podcast and then book their ticket. because like That sounds beautiful. It's I really think cool. is great.
0: I think like right now, now that I, I know who you are and I'm like, really, I really want to get to know your work and <laughs> to know that I can actually go and click and see you. Yeah.
2: I think it's like the, the good thing, even though COVID is sad, is
0: the, the good thing. That, that
2: is true. That is true. Yeah. A lot of people are getting to see, Like I've had people Colombian friends taking workshops that Mexican artists are doing and, and that kind of, we thought we couldn't do and then it turns out we can. We actually, last two weeks ago, we filmed The Orb Weaver, El Hilador. Um, yeah, we did oh, good. beautiful yes. filming. Um, hopefully, it'll be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we, we still can't talk much about it because it's like big news for, uh, it's launching of a new platform that they're doing here in Mexico for, uh, like streaming theater basically. So I'm pretty sure it'll be available, I think, in Canada. Um so as soon as we get more news about that, we'll let you know so you can watch okay. as well.
1: Awesome. So okay, uh as we wrap up this conversation, we really want to talk about the merienda that is the center of what this podcast is. So like the word merienda, we've been learning a lot about it because as we talk with like international artists and people in different places, some people are like, oh, merienda, yes, we know, we know what that is. And other people are like, what is that? <laughs> so what are your relationships to like the word merendia? Meri-
0: merienda. It? But merienda, yeah, merienda, yeah. merienda itself.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, what do you think of when you hear that? It's kind of like a word my grandma would say. Um, it's like, to me, it's dinner time, but it's in, in grammar language. Um, yes. Or like early dinner. Um, and in that, it's something I, I, it's it's really nice because it's something my grandma would say. Like, oh, yeah, me sí, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say it, but my like, it's a, it's a it's a thing that my grandma would say, and it's dinner time.
1: Honestly, anything to do with grandmas and grandmothers' wisdom, I'm like, I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm <laughs> out with my grandma any day. Um, <laughs> so we decided to call this podcast "Me because normally in pre-covid times we would like sit down with our guests and share a meal and then have this conversation and it's it's more of like a connection that way but over this digital space we still want to share a merienda with you but for us merienda is kind of like a little snack right so something that like wets your palate that's like sweet that gets the conversation going so our question to you is what is a merienda for like the brain or the soul or that you can share with us right now? Like, right. what has been bringing you joy recently? It can be anything.
2: It's funny because I have it right here. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Just, I just bought this. <laughs> um, it's really stupid, but it, it, it's <laughs> making me really happy. This is um, a costal, costal de semillas. So basically, it's for any kind of pain. It's beautiful because it, it's got an aromatherapy. Um, so you yeah. heat it up in, in the microwave and it's really warm and lovely. And oh my we, like, I just lay it here and it feels like a hug. Um, so this is making me really, really happy right now. My mom. An elephant. It's an elephant. Yeah. It's we should beautiful.
0: describe it for like. Oh yeah.
2: Cause people can't see it's an elephant. It's um, a, a pouch for seeds and you uh, warm it up uh, in the microwave uh, basically. And it's just really warm. So as a merienda for um, spirit, that, would be, that ah. would be one of the things. My mom made me one a few years ago. It wasn't nearly as nice as this one, but it, it, like a tour. I got a little tear in it a few weeks ago, so I was really sad. So I got this, this one to replace it. Honestly,
1: that sounds so therapeutic. It is. Like, it's beautiful. And we usually
0: ask questions for our previous guest to ask our guest of right now, which is you. So our previous okay. guest was Bilal Beg, and they wanted to ask you, what is the part of your
2: practice that scares you the least? That's a good question. I was talking to a friend recently about how creativity is basically learning how to manage fear. <laughs> so that's, that's a really good question. Um, it is though, right? Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. like half Sorry. of the time I'm like terrified. I'm like, no, and everything's okay, I'm trying to like manage. Um, I guess part of it that scares me the least will be usually there's a time in like the middle of the rehearsal period um, when I'm rehearsing with actors that everything feels okay. Usually the beginning is kind of like a little bumpy, usually, because you're trying like, you're understanding the project and getting to know the people in it and getting to know what works for certain, certain actors. And then, like, towards the end, it's like tech and everyone's freaking out. And it's horrible. But right in the middle of a rehearsal period, I always feel it's the part of the least scared and, like, the most creative. And basically just working with actors is my favorite thing and the thing that least scares me, which is funny because a lot of people find actors intimidating usually there's a good relationship and that's that's like my happy place middle of rehearsal period and actors in the rehearsal room Mm. that would be it (laughs) that's beautiful
1: i i feel like i can totally picture that it's like there's like maybe a week in the middle of the rehearsal where things are just like flowing it's just kind of the the (laughs) ship kind of left the dock and it's like oh The waves, cool. And then you've got like the storm of Tech Week and whatever the rest is, but
2: yeah. Kind of like already gets the show and everyone kind of like, oh, I understand what I'm doing now. And it's wonderful.
1: (laughs) Awesome. And so is there a question that you would like to ask? Our next guest is going to be also an artist based somewhere in the Americas. We know that our next guest is going to be based in the US. And we are just wondering if you could ask an artist in the Americas a question right now. What would you want to ask?
2: Um, I guess I'm always really interested in what made people feel drawn to the theater in the first place. I mean, like the very first, like, inkling that that was going to be something that you would want to do. Yeah. So I guess if I had to phrase it properly, like what was the first, um, yeah, the first, the first inkling that you would one day become a theater person, I think. Awesome. Thank you so much, Paula. This has Thank been you really so beautiful. Much. Yeah, I Thank really you enjoyed so this. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting Yay. that you're doing this. I think it's really <laughs> cool and important. Thanks for being a part of it. We
1: are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Egan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dagarondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish With One Spoon wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. At ALUNA, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed
0: to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial.
1: Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Aluna Theatre with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and the Metcalf Foundation.
0: Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballant, Radio Aluna Theater is produced by Mónica Garrido and Camila Díaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theater, visit us at alunatheater.ca. Follow at Aluna Theater on Twitter or Instagram or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.